gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon, upon the lofty wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Lang, I am Confucius the Ecumenical Volgi, and this is Radio Gormagon. Welcome to the castle on this very coronavirus uh, weekend. Uh, with me are four other Gormos. We have Doc J. Hello. The Mandarin. Good afternoon. We got Pewter. Is my microphone on? <laughs> and the Czar. I want to apologize to all the crows and ravens I've been throwing rocks and bottles at lately. It's, I thought it was the Corvid virus. And we're here to uh, talk all things Corona, uh, or COVID, or Wuhan flu. So uh, I'll open it up, and maybe we'll start with Doc, since he's kind of on the front lines. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's it's really weird in the hospitals. I'll be completely honest with you. It's this mix of everything is slowly ramping up and slowly heating up in Nashville for uh, what we're anticipating is going to be a whole lot of COVID patients getting into entering the hospital. Uh, right now at our hospital, we have about 10 in the hospital, four in the ICU. One went down to step down a couple of days ago. Um, but we've been gearing up very, very aggressively. We've opened up two new floors um, that were, we were planning on opening, but we got, got the job done quickly. We built a couple of COVID testing drive-throughs on our campus. And, you know, we've, have a whole bunch of standard operating procedures in place. We've had a lot of education for pretty much all things COVID. And one thing where I would like to uh, send a middle finger to the governor of Michigan, we are giving um, hydroxychloroquine to uh, select patients at the hospital. So uh, hydroxychloroquine is also known as Plaquenil. It's used for rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and a whole bunch of other, other diseases like that. And what we're using it, the way we're using it is that if you are hospitalized with Corona, so you have to be sick enough to make it into the hospital. Um, and then you have at least one risk factor, whether it's um, you're not doing very well or you're older, have coronary disease, have lung disease, et cetera. Um, we're giving a, a five-day course of the drug. And it's important these folks stay in the hospital because what happens is, is that the medication can make them prone to arrhythmias. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're using it. We're, we're treating people with it. I don't think we have any official protocols open yet, but we're working on protocols for that. And then the second drug, which is the Gilead compound, it is um, an Ebola drug, and it blocks the RNA to RNA transcription of these viruses. We've got, we've got those. And then I think we've even given IL-6, uh, the IL-6 inhibitor in our... Uh, institution. So we're doing quite a bit with it. And it's all, you know, so far so good in Nashville. Doc, just, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm, you know, I've got some science background, but not a ton. And I was just curious, I wrote down a couple things where you were talking when you're talking about the Plaquenil or Plaquenil. Yeah. Uh, you said there were the possibilities of arrhythmia as a side effect. What is that long QT syndrome or something like that? Or Yes. So uh, long QT syndrome, um, a lot of drugs um, whether they're an antiarrhythmic, um, uh, some cancer drugs, um, antipsychotics, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, when you take these medications, they prolong the time it takes for the heart to recharge. And the longer it takes a heart to recharge between beats, the more likely you could have uh, an arrhythmia called torsade from it uh, or polymorphic VT. So what happens is you take the drug and if it makes your QT interval too long, the time it takes the heart to recharge too long, then uh, it could cause you to have an arrhythmia. Okay, that's, that explains that to me. So, but uh, the other thing, since we're all sort of laymen and you're, you, you know, it'd be like talking to me about law and I'm throwing stuff around or talking to Czar about killing people um, with all these terms of art. But could you, I remember very little biology. Uh, I don't think I've taken a science course since high school. So... 
I do remember RNA transcription, and you talked about that in, in light of the Ebola drug. Could you explain, I think that has to do with virus replication. Could you explain a little bit and as layman as you can get so that our listeners can understand that a bit better? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really sorry. I sound like uh, Dr. Fauci probably, who also is not the best at drilling down sometimes. But he's so, a Holy Cross grad. <laughs> yes, awesome. So he's been corrupted by the Jesuits as well? Ruined by the Jesuits, yes. Yeah. So... So certain viruses, the measles virus, Ebola, the coronavirus, um, have as their genetic code RNA. And in people, we have something called DNA. Uh, DNA is much more stable and much more durable. And you can think of it as the cookbook for all the proteins your body makes. Viruses um, have RNA, which is a less stable molecule. And so... Uh, what they do is when they invade a cell, they take over the cell's machinery and start running that RNA through like um, a computer uh, program. Is it like a computer like program? A compu- yeah, like a computer program so that it can make the virus proteins. And so the first protein that a virus makes is a special enzyme that allows it to start making copies of its RNA. And so that first enzyme it makes the Gilead drug inhibits. So, so what happens is, is we have drugs that attack the proteins that um, the viruses use to replicate themselves. And certain viruses have to make their own proteins and others hijack the cells. But these viruses fortunately have to make their own so we can poison the virus without hurting the patient. So you literally... Well, not literally, figuratively. You figuratively put a computer virus into the virus's chain of replication. So it disrupts its ability to roll down the assembly line and infect everything else? Um, we, we, we block its assembly line. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah. thank you. Now, continue. I apologize. I just wanted yeah. to have that sort of backdrop for the listeners. Right. So um, I'm not sure how uh, Plaquenil and... Um, Azithromycin, which are being used, work, but that's how the the com- Gilead compound, uh, Revolemisavir or something, whatever I can't remember what Avir it is, but um, the anti-Ebola drug works. So it it it, it shuts down a um, basically the copier that the enzyme carries into the cell. I mean the drug the virus carries into the cell. Have you seen? I mean we've heard a lot of talk about ventilators. I mean, and I sort of, I understand it's basically, you know, it's lungs for your lungs, basically. It makes your lungs function when your lungs can't do their job. But I mean, how huge an issue is this? And are you concerned about it? Two-parter. Um, so, am, so how huge an issue it is, um, it's beginning to be an issue in New York a little bit. Um, Cuomo is looking at a lot of graphs and a lot of projections. and he wants all the ventilators he needs for the worst case scenario. And there's no guarantee that worst case scenario is going to happen. In fact, it's looking like the worst case scenario is probably not going to happen. And a really tight, stressful, we may be a few ventilators short situation is probably going to happen in New York. Now I can tell you in Nashville, one of the two hospitals that I work at, um, uh, we have the transplant department's offices in what used to be an old ICU. So um, when we remodeled the intensive care unit, we first basically refurbished an offline uh, intensive care unit and then um, used that while we were remodeling and then moved out and the transplant offices moved in. So the suits showed up and scouted that area out and they're planning on moving everybody out of that office suite and converting it back to MICU beds, which basically for them means take everyone's office furniture out, wash the place, and they'll be and put some computers and stuff in, and put the beds in, and they're ready to go. What? What? And we have one of our floors at the other hospital. One of our floors um, is going to be converted to an ICU as soon as we real- determine if we need it or not. So we have the capacity to make ICU beds. We have spare ventilators. We're not doing elective surgery, so we can use the operating room as ICU, um, ICU um, beds and ventilators as well. Do you, do you think 
we've heard a lot about um, prognoses, sort of projected prognoses for deaths and for deaths by age cohort. Yes. Um, do you, I know that we have to make assumptions to plan, which is fine. And I understand that that's a necessary thing. You know, we do the same thing in my industry. I mean, and I'm sure, you know, that's part of medicine. But do you think we have enough data at this point um, to accurately project what the, I'm going to say this poorly because I always say things poorly, but sort of the kill ratio is by age cohort? Um, they're not really publishing those numbers, uh, and the numbers tend to be a moving target. But we know that older people um, are a higher risk of dying, and we know that the um, there are more younger people getting the virus than older people because they all go on fucking spring break. Uh, so by mass action, you're going to see a higher absolute number of, you know, the millennial age, you know, take one for the team. But when you actually look at the rates, the rates will be lower. Um, and then there's going to be people in every age group that are of higher risk due to um, other medical problems. So my biggest fear is that I'm going to bring home Corona and give it to the little resident who's on Humira for her Crohn's disease. Um, and she could get very sick from, from the virus. So, you know, I come home and shower and throw my scrubs into the sanitize um, mode of our uh, washing machine, um, you know, before I even have contact with anybody in the family. So just to get all that stuff from leaving my shoes outside, um, but that's, that's, you know, those are the precautions we're taking. I think that the numbers and the death rate are a high estimate because we don't know all the people that um, are asymptomatic. And a lot of people who are mildly symptomatic are not getting tested. One of my friends in California called his doctor and the doctor said, stay home. We don't have enough tests right now to, you know, do surveillance. And that's one of the things that Dr. Bricks was talking about. One of the press conferences is that until they can start going around and have the CDC just swab everyone who knows every case um, in certain areas, they can't really get a good number of sort of the denominator in order to get that uh, risk, the, the risk of death determined. Uh, you know, I wasn't paying attention. Could you say that all over again? Well, now, that might've been from the half handle that you just poured down your gullet. Doc, I've got a question for you. As far as, you know, we talk about preventative measures, washing your hands and avoiding social contact. I mean, is there anything else we can do from a prophylactic kind of standpoint as far as taking anything? Does vitamin C work? Yeah, what, are some, what are some preventative measures you can do? We, we don't really have preventative measures other than stay the hell away from other people. Um, I mean, that's all we've – yeah. Um, the masks don't, masks don't work because – what ends up happening is that, you know, you're, if you get something on you, you're going to somehow get it in under the mask and you're going to concentrate any virus. So um, using masks as prevention from catching it is probably not very helpful. It's helpful for the people who have it to keep from spreading it. I got hit up on Twitter because so my daughter, one of three, is a nurse down outside of Atlanta. And she was telling me some of the conservation methods uh, that they're employing at their hospital. So now uh, the PPE that they have, so the face masks, the, um, uh, well, the mask, the eye protection, the gloves, uh, they are bagging and, and labeling it with both their name and the patient's name and then reusing it for that specific instance. And then I've heard of other, uh, her roommate's hospital, they're actually trying to use equipment for like a full day or, or even trying to figure out how they can sanitize it in between uses for it. And so I got attacked on Twitter because I was saying, hey, if you don't need them, like, why are, you, why are you stockpiling them? Why are you going out and buying them? Especially the N95 mask, which like I couldn't wear one right now because I have facial hair that would obstruct having it properly fitted. Yeah. Like I don't recognize about half hair. of my colleagues because um, they've all, they've all shaven their beards off and things. So because well, they, they, they remember you can, you can wear a face mask one way and reverse it the next day. That's what I do. Good. Safety last man. Yeah. So uh, 
Appreciate the, the medical stuff. So maybe let's jump over and, and cover um, some of the government approach. Um, so I'm going to throw it to Czar to start us off here. Czar, what's your take on kind of the overall federal approach and maybe touch on federal versus state response? Well, I, I wouldn't say that I've been tracking this as carefully. I would say that one of the things I've noticed is, uh, at least from the sh- social perspective, is um, there's like two parallel narratives going on. The first is um, that this is like the most horrible thing that's ever happened. And you start to see that uh, from the perspective of some of the folks that are doing the planning and the response and, and handling the administration of it. And that makes sense because they have to look at the worst possible scenario and ask if we're genuinely ready for it. Conversely, we have um, kind of the, I want to call it almost the libertarian response is like, you know, this is going to be just fine. This is no worse than the flu, which, you know, is also a valid narrative as well. It, it, it's probably quite true, but we're seeing that, that kind of extremes of responsiveness and I, I think that which of those you prefer to believe depends uh, or, or influences very much what your response to the virus is from the federal and states, uh, uh, the federal government and the state government. So, for example, if uh, you are prone to watch uh, televised news, you're probably thinking that given the unbelievable deaths that's happening, just hundreds of thousands of people are, are dropping dead from this all around the world, that no, we're not doing anything. Uh, you know, the, the government has completely bungled this. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, if you tend to think that things are going to be okay, you're probably thinking that maybe the federal government's overreacting and the state governments are, are being overly critical. Um, yet at the same time, you know, I, I think what's so delightful about this for me to watch uh, is just how you've got people who normally would never ever trust the media are, are suddenly believing it. You've got people that absolutely hate the government who are being forced to admit that things are going okay. You've got uh, folks that depend absolutely on, on everything needs to be federalized and the federal government should be in control of everything. Absolutely ripping the administration saying that nothing's getting done. It's, it's such a, a crazy time to be watching social media right now. Yeah. Here in Nashville, it's been, uh, pretty funny that way too because um, I have um, we have like a neighborhood um, Facebook page and uh, the number of people in my neighborhood that have been begging the governor to pretty much lock down the entire state um, is driving me insane um, because he doesn't need to I mean the mayor locked down the city Nashville's where kind of the real problem is Nashville and Memphis and this, the mayors are taking care of that. But I mean, if you live in Cock County, there's like one case. And uh, in Trousdale County, there might be one or two cases. Um, and they don't need to be on like some sort of martial law lockdown. And the same people that were calling Trump Hitler all this time are now like saying, please, Trump, be Hitler. Please, could you Hitler a little bit for us? It's interesting when you're talking about quarantines and like, I guess, cordon sanitaire is that the French would call it, you know, but but they're rat bastards and nobody should ever listen to the French. Um, It's, I'm sympathetic to the idea of keeping people in place, meaning I have a real problem and this always happens. The rich always bug out. But in New York City, this has been a particular problem because there are so many rich people in New York City per you know, per meter, I guess, if you did a per meter, it might have the biggest concentration of truly, truly rich people in the universe. Well, I can't say universe, but the world. And a lot of them already bugged out to the Hamptons and to their estates in Florida and, you know, to their ski places in Wyoming and Jackson Hole or in Vail and Colorado or to their ranches in Montana. And I'm sure California is the same way. I mean, you've got a lot of people and I think New York is exceptional and doc because you're, you know, you're more medical profession and I, well, you are a medical profession, um, but I'm not sure about epidemiologically, but I think New York City would be the perfect environment aside from like, let's say Hong Kong, you know, for a concentration of people in a very, very small area to spread this stuff. It, it would make sense to shut the airports in New York City and to basically say you can't sell gas to, to cars with New York tags within 400 miles of New York City or whatever, you know, unless you know, they can show that they live in the town with their driver's license or something. 
Yeah, they have been tightening up New York quite a bit out of proportion to the rest of the country and reasonably so. I mean, it is the, the hot, it's the hot zone for uh, COVID in our country. Should have done it years ago. I mean, I'm Can't really all, yeah, I'm all for dumping, you know, dumping most of New York City. I mean, I, I, I've been saying blow the bridges, flood the tunnels, shut off the power lines, blow the transmission lines and, you know, get rid of the aquifers upstate because that's all our stuff upstate, our stuff as I pound the table. Okay, um, Bane. And I thought he was dead. Who what? Dirk Pilks? Pilkson. Oh, Snake. 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 Bliskin. Bliskin. Close enough. I, I'll, give you, I'll give you a bonus punch for that one. But yes. But it's, it's one of those things where where do you draw the line on civil rights in this? And I've been looking at this and my family's been yelling at me at this for the whole time from a very economic standpoint, which is yes, we should do what we can. And this seems to hurt the old and the infirm most of all. And I have no problems taking one for the old and infirm because very shortly, we're all going to be in that age group, you know, another couple decades, two, three decades. Um, But as I said to my kid, you got screwed by the 2008 collapse through no fault of your own. You know, a lot of people came out, you know, post 2008 and, and had to get jobs, a lot of kids. And a lot of kids are now looking at this and they're getting screwed because they're having their education screwed up or they're having, you know, whatever they're doing, their jobs, they're they're getting all this stuff screwed up. And again, this is sort of, and it's an all for the old people thing. And I love the old people. My mother's an old person. My father's an old person. You know, it's, but at a certain person, I'm an old person, but at a certain point, you've got to let America get back to work. And if it's not going to kill off, you know, a significant number of the people that you're sending back to work. And there's, there are ways to do this. You know, you send the people that are least vulnerable back first and, you know, hopefully we get an antibody test. So people who are immune or in theory can go back to work. And then you really, you know, you really isolate people who are very vulnerable to it. But if you keep this economy shut down for a long time, you're looking at a real problem, probably on the level of the depression or worse. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how the nation responds to this, and especially the younger people who I've already indicated they're not real willing to go inside for more than a week or two. Well, Peter, you've hit upon one of my hot topics. Um, I read a comment uh, a few days ago on Twitter. Wish I could remember who uh, tweeted it first, but you know, frankly, everybody on Twitter is really not that important to me. Uh, but that went along the lines of that the world culture is going to fundamentally change as a result of this, whether it wants to or not, on a level that we haven't seen since World War II. Um, and I think we're, we're probably seeing that more in our country than in others. Uh, but what I'm noticing is, uh, or what I'm suspecting we're going to start noticing is around here, I'm seeing uh, with you know 200 million Americans staying home, gas prices in our area have plunged. I'm seeing a, you know less than $2 a gallon now. Um, we're seeing that, uh, you know, the, the highways are free of traffic, uh, here in the state of Illinois, they've closed the toll booths. You still have to pay tolls electronically, but we're not seeing, um, uh, you know, we're, we're just not seeing any employees working there. We're seeing folks who are, uh, suddenly not driving in traffic, uh, getting 20 hours of their life back per week. You know, if they drive an hour a day, uh, we're seeing that, uh, college students are starting to probably ask some serious questions or at least their tuition paying parents are that what are we paying all this money for when my, you know, to have these huge Ivy covered campuses when our kids can, can stay in, in bed and get the same quality education. Um, I think that there is going to be a lot of things that fall out of this that our culture is not really ready for that probably in the long run are going to be really, really good. This is kind of the, the seismic shift, the little push in the right direction that we needed on a lot of things. But this big seismic shift is actually also causing, you know, uh, a, a widening between classes, between social classes. I mean, uh, the people who can comfortably work from home are pretty much all salaried. And uh, they're, you know, all in jobs where they can, you know, work from home. And it's the same with the education. Um, little resident, little med student are uh, telecommuting to uh, school every day uh, from the uh, from their bedrooms. Um, you know, they have laptops with webcams. 
They have all the tech that they need, a really good internet connection, everything they need to function, and all of their classmates do as well. But, you know, the public schools in Nashville are, you know, completely shut down, and there's really no learning going on. And they're trying to figure even, you know, what are they going to do about a lost month? And, uh, you know, not that I'm crying, you know, that I'm the kind of person who cries a river in these situations, but I think it's going to have a big effect. Um, small business people and, and hourly, um, hourly employees are the ones that are really getting hit by something like this. And they're the ones who really want to get back to work. Um, we have uh, dear friends who have a small business and it's basically a stationary store. That's who we get our Christmas cards from. Uh, and, you know, her business is probably going to shut down because, you know, not only, you know, is it a small business and so you got all the overhead and logistical issues, who the fuck's going to buy balloons and cards right now? I mean, you know, it's not something anybody needs. Um, and I think there's going to be large numbers of people that potentially are going to be shifting into other areas. Um, you know, delivery and things like that is becoming so much more prominent and takeout and things like that because of this, this situation. So, Lots of people are moving into different business sectors um, as a consequence of it. And it's kind of almost like AIDS. AIDS was the last time that we really saw something seismic. I mean, that was when we really began to move to a disposable culture. Well, that's uh, sort of, that's my excuse for not getting laid in high school. So, because everybody thought you would die if you had sex. And I think, you know, I'd like to think it was that rather than my general unattractiveness. Um, well, with you, there was a good chance you'd turn up missing. True, true. You know, I, picking up guys, picking up truckers in the, you know, in the, in, the, in the rest stops on the throughway was probably not the best way to go about it. But damn it, I tried. And, you know, and I became an altar boy to try to get laid during high school, and it didn't work. And it's just horrible. It just didn't, you know, it's, it's a horrible thing. Even the free sample sign around your neck did not help. It did not work. But anyway, you know, I haven't heard much from the Mandarin or Mandy, as I affectionately call him recently, but he's got a really good topic that I think is very important to address at this point in time. So, you know, Mandy, would you go ahead and talk to us a little bit and let us know what's going on? Absolutely. So one of the things I think has really come out of this is that whole general level being prepared. You know, everybody's looking for the government to help them out, looking for these free checks, looking for all these other things. But at the end of the day, you really have to be able to take care of yourself and your family. And it's interesting. I know on the 13th of March, you know, as I was coming home from work, my wife called me and said, I need you to meet me at the store right away. And this is when things were starting to get kind of dicey and it was looking like the kids had just gotten the order to stay home from school. You know, we went to go buy some just regular, you know, shopping items and the store was mobbed. And what normally would have taken 45 minutes was a two and a half hour ordeal just to get out of the place. And people had picked everything over. And, you know, luckily we're, we're fairly fortunate in that we've got stuff put away. I mean, I'm not going to have a, a year's worth of food in the house per se, and, you know, some doomsday bunker, but we've got enough, you know, for God forbid that for a few weeks, if you we had to be quarantined, you couldn't get out of the house that we'd be able to eat. We'd be able to survive. And I think, you know, if nothing else, maybe this is a wake up call to a lot of people that again, I don't need to have the survival bunker built 50 feet down in the backyard, you know, dug out in a little bomb shelter and a year's worth of you know, freeze dried food. But it's important to have certain supplies on hand for the simple fact that you may be quarantined at any, any time. This, these events, you don't get forewarned sometimes. You know, these come on suddenly and it may not be a pandemic. Maybe you lost your job. It may be illness. Whatever it is, you need that kind of those stores, those, those provisions to be able to take care of yourself. The other thing is this whole ammunition run. And I love it. I think this is going to do a wonders for the gun, gun rights um, movement. These anti-gun people that thought you could just go to a vending machine, put in 50 cents and get a gun to drop out and go home with it have got a really rude awakening. You know, they, they realize not only is it a long process, but now because every single state is overwhelmed, these Instant background checks aren't so instant. I mean, I'm, I'm on a certain concealed carry forums here in Illinois where I'm watching people that are basically saying, you know, I went to go buy a gun, and it's two weeks before the approval comes back because the state police are so overwhelmed and are understaffed at this point. So, again, if, you know, if you're preparing now in the event, but as the event's taking place, it's way too late. You had to make these preparations beforehand. And, again, you had to figure out what's reasonable for yourself. And for your, you know, be able to support your family around you. And again, it can be expensive if you try to do it all at once. But if you do it 
over time, if you, you know, maybe you, every week when you go to the store, you buy four cans of green beans because that's what you use in a week. Maybe you buy six cans and put two on the side. You rotate that stock in and out. But these are important things because, again, you can't rely on the government. The government's overtaxed. The economy's collapsing at this point in, you know, in some respects. You know, they just wrote a $2 trillion check that maybe some of us will see part of that money. Some of us won't, depending on where your income levels are at. But, again, you've got to be able to take those steps. You know, first standard first aid. Trust me, if I cut my hand open, the last thing I want to try to do is go to the emergency room at this point. I know a lot of hospitals by us, I mean, they're, they're turning people away. They're trying to, you know, do whatever it is. You need to be able to take care of yourself for certain minor things. I'm not going to do an appendix, you know, move my appendix at home per se. But, you know, you'd be, you, know you don't want to overburden the, the health system. I mean, Dr. J can attest this. He's, I'm, the hospitals are overwhelmed. I mean, right here at the hospital up the block from us, you can see that, you know, they've got tents outside. They're screening people before you can get in. And God forbid, you know, some family member gets sick or your child gets sick. They're not letting you go in the hospital. They're taking that person into the facility, and you're not getting in with them. So the last thing you're going to want to go in there with is some minor injury that with a little for, for not, you know, foreknowledge and a little first aid knowledge and maybe a good first aid kit that you can take care of yourself. I'm not yeah. saying – so like you need, you whatever, need 200 but. rolls of toilet paper, though? Is that what you're saying? Well, I've got 305, so I am think I'm good, but I've got some problems. But anyway. All I can say is one thing this has taught us is that 97% of this country would not survive a hurricane. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. When, when right. I see water stocked on the shelves but the toilet paper is gone, I'm thinking you've got that exactly backward. Uh, well, exactly, because you can figure out. I'm going to be a little graphic here, but you can figure out how to wipe your ass without toilet paper before you can die of With a thirst. paper towel, right? We did, yeah. we did it for hundreds of years beforehand, yes. Yeah, or, you Dude know. recommends brawny. I'm buying, stock, I'm buying bidet stocks, but that's besides the point. <laughs> you know, those, there was a huge run on those little shower things that you can attach to your toilet. You can't get one for, like, the next probably 20 years at this rate, but you can't even get freeze dried food. So like any of those, any of those places like my Patriot supply or wise food products where you used to, you used to be able to get those supplies in two to three days from your order are now five to six weeks at, at best because Mandy, people have had so, such a run on it. So I think, I think Mandy though brings up a great point around dependent on, dependency on the government. Look, I've worked in and around the federal government for 25 plus years and it's, it's a bureaucracy. It, is not made to move with any agility whatsoever. You know, yeah, there's certain pockets of it, particularly in the military and in a couple first responder type organizations. But by and by and large, it is a big behemoth that moves slowly and you cannot rely on it. And it should. But but we should I mean, like this is my axe that I grind on Twitter all the time. We don't need it to do everything in our lives. We should be pushing that down to the states and to the municipalities and then to ourselves. And that's what I'm afraid of is that so many people in, this, in a situation like this are so scared and are so willing to be taken care of because they've got themselves into a bind that they're willing to let the government take a little bit more control and, and just be able to get that $2,400 check or to get that food assistance or whatever it is. And again, I'm not faulting anybody. I would not want to be in that position. You know, to be in a situation where, through no fault of, fault of my own, you know, now the grocery stores are cut off or whatever it is. But at the same time, you've got to have some discipline. Maybe you don't go out to the movies this week. You take a little bit of that money, do something else with it. It's a question of what your priorities are. And I think this is a real eye opener for a lot of people who thought that could never happen to me. This will and be a big eye opener that- for. For the people that uh, are in favor of government-run health care, I think that uh, the anti-government health care folks have the greatest possible ammunition that they've ever, ever had. They've just been given a gift. We'll be right back to this episode on coronavirus. But first, a word from one of our favorite places to go when we feel a little peckish. Hello, children. Hello. It's your lovable and inscrutable Mandarin here today for the Northwood Sushi Bar of Amy. Northwood Sushi Bar has the best in local sashimi, from bluegill to muskie to perch and pumpkin seed. In lieu of pickled ginger, enjoy an old-world spread of cottage cheese and beets. Try the elegant hand rolls of vinegar-soaked crappie served with a head of lettuce and a tomato wedge. Or have Chef Kev whip you up a one-of-a-kind treat. Obey me. Just like he does for your Mandarin. Such favorites as the Udagarami roll, Hadakajimi, served three ways, and that old family favorite, the boot to the gut. As always, obey me and enjoy the Northwood Sushi Bar. Damn it. Amiable. 
And now back to our episode on the coronavirus. Yeah, think, I mean, in our town, in Nashville, there's um, about 250 beds at the VA hospital and about 2,500 beds at the three flagship hospitals. And that's gone up since that count when we've, in three of the hospitals, they've expanded the number of beds. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've been taken by is the amount of uh, deregulation that has gone on in the executive branch with uh, cutting back on FDA regulations, cutting back on a number of business regulations. And as a consequence, things have really moved. I mean, I know we were t talking about a lot of problems with early coronavirus testing and the media has been hammering the government for that. But when they kind of said, okay, we're going to, you know, fast track a lot of FDA approval and we're going to kind of get a little bit out of the way. Um, American Ingenuity has developed and is bringing to market and has brought to market already better tests than what they've been using in China, better tests than what they were using in Italy, and better testing than they have all over the world. I mean, it's more specific. It's getting faster and faster and faster. I mean, it, it, we're talking weeks. Um, uh, the number of clinical trials. What? Hot topic for me is uh, <clears throat> the, the false equivalency that I keep seeing peddled by the, the media that, you know, they're that now there's 100,000 deaths in Italy, whose apparently their healthcare system is exactly the same as ours. So, you know, how, how bad is it going to be here? And this is killing me. It, it's the Chinese, the Italians, the Spanish do not have our healthcare system. No, not, they're not even close. I mean, it was 2,000 years ago that the Italians were a world power. And the Spanish were a world power about, what, 1,000, 500, 500 years ago? No, 16, was it 1688, the defeat of the Spanish Armada? Yeah, but that was about uh, 600 years ago. That was about yeah. it, but yeah. Yeah, so, so they've, they've passed their prime. They peaked. Um, they peaked. The, the Italians have the concrete and the aqueducts, which literally the Romans built the aqueducts, and they still supply Rome with its water today. I mean, how crazy is that? So the Romans 2,000 years ago, or 2,200 years ago, or however long ago, were awesome. And now they can't friggin' form a government, fight a war, do anything worthwhile. They can't take care of their own people, and they can't even reproduce. I mean, that's really what a large part of this, you know, you know comes down so, to. So I'm encouraged by some of the deregulation that, that you guys referenced. But at the same time, I saw an article earlier this morning about uh, the failure, it's a, it's a prime example of the failure of big government, where a contract was let back in 2008 to uh, plus up our Federal Reserve of ventilators. And that contract went on and on, and it was a small company that was awarded it, and they were making really good progress. And then they were bought out by uh, a larger firm that deals with medical equipment. And that company decided we weren't, it wasn't profitable enough. So they went to the government and basically asked them to get out of the contract. And the government let them. And that's millions, literally millions of dollars that we have spent with nothing to show for it. We got no ventilators out of the deal. And now we're essentially starting over from scratch. There's a, another contract that's active. They're supposed to deliver later this year. You know, you sort of see these things and you're unsure whether they're how accurate they are. But there have been some you know, colleges and universities and, and that have come up with, you know, I think Florida, University of Florida came up with like a $200 respirator workaround or ventilator workaround where you, it's, it's crazy and it's very, very basic and it's made out of stuff you can find in a hardware store, but it works. And the problem is, and as you noticed, in, as you've noted, the regulations are large. In, I tell you what, if I'm lying in an ICU bed and you know, Doc is standing over me going, do you want to try the $300 piece of shit that they, you know, that the guys, you know, a bunch of drunk engineers in Florida put together? And I'm like, yes, please, please let me do this. You know, save my life. I don't care what it is. If that's the best you've got, that's the best we've got. And America has always done that. We've made shit work. I mean, Sherman tanks in World War II were pieces of shit compared to the, Rus the Russian and German tanks. But we made so goddamn many of them that we ended up winning, you know, at the cost of many lives and all that other stuff. But, but we ended up winning you know, because of that. And America still does that because we still produce people who want to win. And we still and have government that doesn't get in the way when it's run by Republicans. 
and, and that's it, and that's a good point. You, you talk about you know I'm looking right here, you know, and this whole relief bill that went through, you know, they insisted on getting this twenty five million dollars for the Kennedy Arts Center, and then just today the Kennedy Arts Center announces they're letting everybody off. So what did that twenty five million dollars go to? You know, you've got three hundred fifty million dollars for refugee resettlement. $75 million went to PBS. Here's a situation where we're trying to keep the economy afloat, trying to theoretically get all this money into the health system to buy these ventilators to give this aid. And you've got this pork in here at a time when it's it just asinine. And like I said, it, it kills me that you get someone like Pelosi who's complaining that this is a corporate slush fund, and then yet she's got $25 million going in the, to the um, Kennedy Center, and they still lay off all their people. So yeah, I, I'm no Keynesian, and – uh, yeah, I'm no Keynesian, and you know, I was like, why is she delaying this bill a week? I mean, she single-handedly, and the Democrats in the House said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna you know make this better, and then they spent a week like just basically filling pork into a 90 to 99 percent complete bill, and uh, they put a ton of crap in it, and at least they were stopped from putting some of the really egregious stuff. Cause in some early drafts, I know they wanted to make sure everyone was still getting their abortions. So, you know, here's a great quote from Nancy Pelosi. She says, as the president fiddles, people are dying. This is a woman who, who deliberately delayed, like I said, a bill they were ready to sign last Sunday to get this pork in. And she's got the nerve to turn around. And again, I, there's no politicians that's worth a, worth a spit, but at the same time, I mean, this this is beyond the pale. So I've got a controversial question, as I always do, or Shocker. often do. Yeah, there's Shocker. a joke. So a lot of us own firearms. If you had to have one firearm for yourself, what would it be during this sort of apocalyptic times? You I know, would take a, yours. <laughs> yes, well, that's good. And if you had to pick one for your average new gun owner, because as, as Mandy noted, there's been a lot of people going out and buying firearms. Like if oh you my had, gosh. so I, I'm curious to see what you think. You know, because people are buying hand, firearms and they're buying a lot of ammunition uh, on you know the idea that they're going to protect their homes. And I assume a low level of training because that's just, I think what you're getting at this point what would you recommend for that type of person? And then knowing that many of you are all, you know, experienced firearm owners, what would you keep one weapon? So first, before the rest of you guys answer, please note, go listen to the czar and Mandy's podcast on gun ownership first, especially if you're one of those new gun buyers, because they have a section that talks about this. Well, this is what I get for not listening to any of our podcasts because I hate my voice. Although I wasn't on that podcast, so I probably should have listened to it. So, yes, you should have. So I, I hate the czar's voice too. So, Peter, it's more his face that I hate than his voice and his, you know, his protuber, protuberant nipples. But I think I think to get back to you know the, the point, it's it's a it's a subject that's a uh, you know an inch deep and a mile wide. Again, it's going to really depend on what you what you're comfortable with what your applications are. I mean, you're looking for something that's going to be for home defense. Are you looking for something that's personal offense while you're outside of the home? You know, are you looking for that kind of survival rifle? It's, it's really going to depend on a lot. Um, one of the things you need to be very careful of, I mean, is people get desperate and there's nothing left on the shelves. I mean, are you buying something that's not going to be, you know, people are buying guns now because they're in a panic. Most of those people I think will probably get rid of them once this panic is over. So if you're buying something in a nine millimeter, you're probably going to get a good resale value on that. If you're buying something in some otter caliber, it's falling out of favor, like a 40 or, you know, a 10, you're not going to, you're not going to probably get a good resale on that. Hey, and I'm it's a 40 just, owner. Just, I know. That's why I'm bringing it up. I told you not to buy that, but <laughs> obey me. But anyway, you know, again, it's really going to be dependent on what you think you're comfortable with. And again, no matter what you do, just buying that weapon isn't going to protect yourself. You've really got to know how to use it. You've got to know how to operate the weapon. So obviously you're not going to be able to take a class now, but there's a lot of resources out there on the web that if you, if you have bought a gun, check those out, especially from the manufacturers, as opposed to some of these other gun channels. Some of them are really good. Some of them are questionable beyond belief. But again, you can usually tell which ones are the good ones. And again, the manufacturer websites are, are really good resources and telling you how to clean it, how to operate it, how to manipulate the weapon. It's, it's a good resource. So that's, that's really good advice. And I, I appreciate that. I mean, it's, 
I, I don't prefer handguns. I have a concealed carry permit in New York State, which is because I wanted to get one because I knew they'd make it tighter, and they did. What, one of four? <laughs> I have a, I, I'm sitting next to my gun safe right now that's got, you know, it's loaded with rifles and shotguns. So I've got a tool for every use, and I've used them all, and I know how they all work, and I have ammunition for them all. And I've, all, I've had that and maintained that and cycled through the ammunition to make sure it doesn't go stale. You should and then- change a light bulb with one. Yeah, and the ammunition. The ammunition is a very important thing because I think a lot of people are really uh, um, in a situation like this. Yeah, okay, I bought a gun, but guess what? There's not a there's not a round on the shelf for me to buy to go in that gun. So again, this is a real wake up call for people to get out there and prepare beforehand. And I recommend that whatever gun you have, whether it's a shotgun or multiple rifle, whatever it is, I would recommend at least a thousand rounds for each one of those weapons. Maybe not a shotgun. I don't think you need a thousand shotgun shells. But if you know you've got a five five six or you got nine millimeter, if you're cycling through that, it, it makes a huge difference. And again, the ammunition type matters too. I mean, there's one thing to have range rounds that you're gonna go out to the range with and shoot with those. If you're gonna use something for home defense, whether that's your five five six or your nine millimeter, I recommend something like a critical defense round. It's not gonna have that kind of penetration. It's gonna go through you know five car doors and, and, and ten rooms in your home and go to the next house over. You want something that's gonna be a little more you know, safer inside the home use. So you don't slower. need to get slower. So you don't need to get a thousand rounds of critical defense per se, but maybe you get a couple boxes of that, two or three boxes of that, and then, you know, maybe a lot more of the other rounds to go out and practice with. But again, it's a, it's, this is a huge discussion that, again, we already done a podcast on. We'd all love to do another one on that, but again, it, it's it's vital. And it, is, it is an important part of your self-defense regimen. I, I know people are very uncomfortable around weapons, but a lot of times that's just they haven't either fired one. There's a lot of misconceptions. Like I think a lot of people are finding out now when they go to buy one today in these panic rush that, again, it's not something it's easily available. It's not, you know, it's funny how it's a death machine, so you need it. And then it's okay to have. So we've talked about the medical and we've talked about sort of the home defense and we've sort of talked about the shortages. What do people think about the economic consequences of this? And I'm going to step back because I talk way, way too much. Yeah. I'd say it's unknown yet. We don't, I don't think we know. I tend to agree with the czar that it's unknown at this point. I'm, I'm actually kind of worried about this $2 trillion stimulus bill and what that's going to do to our country. But I will tell you what's really interesting. I was talking to Gorty Sr. this morning about this. I'm really interested to see what, the, what kind of innovation comes out of this. Uh, we were touching on it earlier with the fact of the remote learning and remote workspace. Imagine what could happen to the commercial real estate industry in that vertical. When people realize, oh, I don't need to house all 400 of my employees in this building. Maybe I only need room for 200. And the rest can work from home or work virtually. Um, and Gord, I can assure you the commercial real estate industry is very, very attuned to this right now. They saw something like this coming months ago. Yeah. And the other aspect uh, that I know um, I've exchanged a few messages with, uh, with Pewter on this on the side is particularly colleges and universities and virtual learning. Now, I would argue based on observing my two college age kids I don't think they're getting quite the education remotely that they are. Uh, But I think I would scratch a lot of that up to just being unprepared for doing distance learning. But I think if you take some lessons learned from the places that are doing it right, uh, you really have to start questioning the cost of college. Again, mostly around real estate costs, but also around total cost of the college. Doc, you want to jump in here? Yeah, um, I'd, I'd like to speak to the education aspect of it. Um, I think, I mean, there, there is a learning curve very clearly. Um, you know, uh, the Sith Academy where the little med student goes, um, they've been reassessing how they're doing things in real time. And after just a week, they've uh, sent us a survey to get as parents our perspective on, um, you know, what is working, what isn't working, um, you know, from a logistic standpoint, from a workload standpoint, because, um, you know, I think that, you know, uh, the little med student, I mean, he's had some of his complaints of just not being in the thick of it and not being there. And he got an email from his math teacher because he was taking screenshots of his math homework. So what he would do is he would 
print it out, do it by hand, take a picture of it with his phone and email it in. But, you know, you know, he would take it at some bizarre cockeyed angle and his teacher's like, you're not doing this next week. So um, I introduced him to the scanner and, you know, he and I've been practicing, how do you scan and email it to your teacher? Um, so there's that learning curve with some of that because he just simply doesn't want to write on the screen uh, on a PDF file. He's like, I'd rather just have it in my hand, write it. And, but the, the, the product he was sending back was unacceptable to the teacher. Um, so, but the teacher was cool about it. Um, he only force choked him once or twice. Uh, so they do that there. Um, now the Benny Gesserit Academy, on the other hand, they're, um, it's where the little resident goes. Um, they're not giving them enough work yet. Um, I think they're kind of doing a slow burn, uh, where they're kind of ramping it up a little bit slowly. Cause I think they're not as attuned to how to, how to implement this, um, at their school, as well as the Sith Academy did. I mean, they were, they were almost salivating at the opportunity to do something high tech and different. Well, it looks like Pewter probably crept down to the dungeon's bathroom. So maybe, uh, Mandy, do you have any thoughts on the distance learning and distance work? Well, I, you know, I've been doing it for a while. In fact, it's, it's interesting because last, last summer about this time, late spring, early summer, we actually had to work from home for like eight weeks while we did, we did our offices. So I was kind of used to it. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because you do feel disconnected. Even though we have these face-to-face meetings through WebEx or, or you know, what have you, it, it definitely, it's hard to collaborate as much as you would in, in a normal situation. And I think while some people are going to like being able to work from home, I think you're going to kind of see a backlash a little bit that people are going to want to get back together. There is a, there is a social interaction component of being at work. So I, I think it's important. And, you know, and going back to the economy, I'm actually optimistic. I think the fundamentals of the economy were fairly strong going into this. You know, had we been in a situation where the, those fundamentals weren't strong, this would be a, a huge disaster. I'm trying to be optimistic because I think, despite the fact that we just added another $2 trillion to the deficit, that, you know, I, I think it'd be, like you said, if we didn't do this, it'd be even worse. You'd be adding $4 trillion to the deficit as we're trying to bail everybody out, as we, tr- you know, try to stave off some kind of huge depression. I think you're, you're going to see, it's just a confluence of, you know, the market correction, and then people's unsure, you know, unsuredness and just overall fear of this whole pandemic situation. But as we go through this, and as things are going along, we're starting to see even the, the imperial study that came out of London, you know, wildly revised their numbers back down as opposed to the number of people they thought were going to die from this and everything else. So I think as we get that denominator gets larger, you're going to see the mortality rate goes down. And again, one life lost is too many. But I think people will start to realize that, like, you know, Peter was saying before, there comes a point where you've got to restart the economy. We've got to get back, you know, going and you, you got to take our chances. My financial yeah. advisor was really concerned about the impact of the uh, economy on mortality. Uh, he was afraid that like back in 2008, um, the suicide rate went up 50% um, after the market cratered and he doesn't want to see that happen. And while a lot of my, Uh, liberal and salaried friends are all like, don't open the economy up, keep everyone at home forever uh, because they're getting a paycheck and they're really not thinking about the people who don't. Um, It's not going to work for all the people who are not in those circumstances. And, you know, the market, you know, I think it's going to come back. It's just a matter of how quickly is going to be proportional to how well we weather this virus. Um, I think it'll bounce back pretty quickly. And, uh, Mama Jay and I were talking about uh, her stock portfolios and her investment portfolios, and she had a ton in bonds. I mean, she's 83 or 84, and she's going to move a whole bunch of it over um, before the the real recovery happens um, out of bonds into the market. I mean, I kind of wish she did it when the market was 1900, but at 2100, I think, you know, it'll be a good time for her to move some of those bonds out. Yeah, I generally generally agree with uh, Mandy in that. I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm not worried about the economy per se. I'm more worried about what the impact of that new $2 trillion debt to the U.S. is going to do to it. Hey, Pewter, it looks like you're back from the uh, dungeon bathroom. Do you want to jump in on this? We're talking about the economy. The impact on this is going to be interesting. And I think we've touched on pieces of this. I, you know, I think uh, Mandy and Zar touched on the real estate issue. Um, somebody else brought up the commercial. I think it was Gort or Gort brought up the commercial real estate issue. It, it's going to be a real, 
problem, but but commercial real estate's less of a problem to me because that some of that can be converted into housing, and you know it could alleviate a lot of the housing shortages that you see in some of these major cities if people are all if they've shown themselves able to work from home, you know. And the manuf I worry most about manufacturing and small business. Um, I think you're going to see a bump. Um, and it's going to be more expensive for the average consumer, but you're going to, you're going to see drugs being brought back into this country, meaning drug manufacturing being brought back into this country. And it should be, and it never should have left. I mean, we never, there are certain things that are national security issues, food production, and people don't, people don't think about that. I mean, the farmer, the farmers are still working those fields and the truck, you know, and then the, the pickers, and I, again, this it touches on immigration. I don't care if we need if we need to have 11 million illegal, you know, 11 million immigrants in this country as long as they know who they are, where they are, where they're working, and that we can find them and send them home if we need to. I mean, and that's sort of my issue. It's not, you know, so so that's one issue is agriculture. That's an essential issue. You've got manufacturing of drugs and some of these other things that are other issues that we're finally figuring out, like medical equipment medical masks china's been hoarding them germany shut them off you know i mean it's 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 an interesting situation you know globalism i think on the whole is a good thing i think the problem with globalism has been that for too long our quote elites close quote have decided that it doesn't matter what happens to the people at the bottom end of the scale uh, so long as, you know, they get what they want. And that's why the people in London were shocked by Brexit. And that's why the people in New York City and Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. were shocked by Trump. You know, the, quote, little people have had it. And it's it's the economy. There's going to be huge opportunities for people coming up here. I mean, if you look at commercial real estate, it's going to be a buy, I think, because you got to have a plan for it, because I think it's going to crater and you got to know when to buy it. You know, my industry is going to do fine because there's going to be a million defaulted loans and all the sucker money is going to be bailing out because there's going to be other places to invest as the economy comes back. And they're, you know, they're going to get out of my little sector. But, you know, I, I, it's, it is going to come back, but it needs to come back quickly or, I, and we touched on this, my fear is that you'll end up with a whole generation that's looking at socialism as as a viable alternative and my one of my kids is already there and i'm going you're a freaking idiot because you know you didn't grow up knowing the soviet union and look at venezuela and look at north korea and look at all these other countries so you've got a generation that hasn't lived with a really major world power socialist slash communist country so we need we need to come back and show that capitalism can generate the jobs for these people so that they can buy houses, they can start families, so they can do the things they want to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. And for too long, the Democrats and the Republicans have pretty much ignored this problem. We have not, capitalism in this country has not looked out for the little guy for probably 40 years. And that's my sort of economic look at this. Everything that's happened has proved Trump right. The fact that, you know, he talked about the fact that we were, everything was overseas and nothing was here. Everything that he got blasted for as being xenophobic, racist, and everything else turned out in the end to be right. And that, that's in some ways scary and in some ways, um, I don't want to say unfortunate, but that we had to learn it this way, that nobody could just see the right, the writing on the wall, that when everything is outside of this country and something happens, it's speaking can be easily turned off. Peter's right that the little guy hasn't been looked out for, but I think this is such a time of opportunity for the little guy to if they have some great entrepreneurial ideas that this is right a ripe market for them to to grow into i think we're going to see a lot of really interesting innovation around virtual working virtual education you know more distributed workspace collaboration and then all the industries that we talked about food medicine um you know the supply chain concerns that we have coming back to the u.s uh i i just think it's it's a powerful event in our history that, that I think is going to be a, a momentum changer for the U.S. Well, Gord, 
Gorty, Gort, Volgai, Volgi, Volgay. I don't even know what to call the anybody anymore. I mean, we all have these pseudonyms, and I don't know how to pronounce any of them. But I Confucius. think this was probably call him Confucius. Confucius. That would make more sense. This yeah, would probably this would probably be one of the better places to end this. We could break this into two or three pieces, but you know, I we could talk all night because most of us have been drinking incessantly since eight a.m. or whenever we got up, and some of us before that because they know how to put in an IV. So it, it, you know, this would be a good place to end. I don't know. What do you think, Gorty? We will look at doing a follow-up podcast to this. This persists for much longer. Um, we'll see. Maybe we can get Volgi out of his part of the castle and come on down to do a recording with us. It's Volgi. <laughs> okay. So for Gorty uh, and the Mandarin and Doc, Czar and Pewter. Good night. Bye, everybody. We'll see ya. Good night, Sue Ellen. Bye-bye. Obey me. (laughs) Can't believe they let me back in the goddamn country. It's just a tip.